Good morning. Glad you're here. Merry late Christmas and happy early New Year, all of that. I'm thankful to be here this morning at Grace Bible Church. We still uh, enjoy relationships we started when we were members here, and I'm thankful for the hospitality you gave us in the spring when I preached a, f- a few times. And uh, recently, Mandy was at a gingerbread building, gingerbread houses, and that was a relationship she started here. Ladies getting together, and today, right after service, we're heading to Austin to bring in the new year with people that we've worshipped with here. And so. I enjoy the relationships and the blessing that, that you've been in our lives, and, and I want you to know that I stay prayerful for you, and um, thank God for Grace Bible Church. I have also am excited because I've been assigned a, a beautiful and weighty passage this morning. Uh, a German commentator, Philip Spencer, said that if the Bible were a ring, Romans would be the diamond, and Romans 8, the sparkling part. And so we're going to look at part of the sparkling part this morning. The exact passage is Roman, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. And we're going to read it three times this morning. Rather than read it once and then work through it from top to bottom, I want to just survey it three times. Once with uh, a past orientation and once with a present orientation, and once with a future orientation, and that should match the notes that are, that are in your bulletin. So we're going to look and see that in the past, God had a plan. In the future, we, in, the, in the present, we have suffering. And in the future, we have grace and glory that is uncomparable. So let me pray, and then we'll read it through the first time and look with a past orientation lens. Jesus, I ask that you would give us great help as we look into your word, that you would give me great help to elaborate carefully and accurately, and that we would hear from your Holy Spirit, that we would be pricked to repentance and and to worship, and that we would connect with you because we came here. We admit that... 2017 was a gift that you gave us and that in all the suffering and all the beauty we enjoyed that you were ever present and we look forward to the promise that in 2018 you will be ever present that you never leave us that you never forsake us that you are our hope and our treasure and our master and our friend and I pray that we would worship you and live for you in a way that would give you great glory and us joy and impact others. I pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a, a passage that certainly hours and hours and hours, seven weighty, wonderful verses. And so I hope that your curiosity to read it and look into it more will be wet this morning. I'm certainly not going to, to cover it thoroughly. But um, I do think it, what I'm going to say is important, and I, and I hope that uh, you'll be in tune for God's Holy Spirit to speak to you. So first, let's read it, and you be looking for the past orientation. So you're looking for past tense verbs. What has, what has happened in the past before Paul wrote this? And we'll focus on that first. He writes, 
For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it patiently. So did you probably see the past tense, two things? One, that creation was subjected. And two, that creation has been groaning until now. So if it has been groaning, that's past orientation as well. So I want to start with those two things. The, that creation was subjected is what we call the fall. And, and, and so... Um, the, the world was supposed to be just a beautiful place, but because of Adam's sin, it is now a, a, a terrible place and a beautiful place. So we have hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes and tornadoes and cancer and, and Alzheimer's and birth defects, and all of that comes from this, this fall that happened at uh, Adam's sin. And, and we see a pattern, I think, through, throughout Scripture. We certainly see an example of it here that that God's so worthy that, that sinning against him merits an entire physical universe falling. Uh, John Piper, in a, in a sermon that I, that I watched in preparation for this one, gave a, a good example of how our, our sin is connected physically. And he gave an example with his kids. If they sassed their mom, he would give them a swat on the behind. Well, their behind didn't sass their mom. But... There's a, there's a connection between physical and trying to bring about a heart change. And so the, the swatting, so to speak, that Adam got was everything was subjected to fertility. The, the fall happened. And that, that one sin, we need to know God is so glorious and so big and so good that that one sin did merit that. That entire fall that we sometimes, the, the, the reverberation of it we call the curse. So the world is now terrible and beautiful at the same time. Since we see that God did this, there's something fascinating we can admit. That God is in charge even of a fallen world. That he's the one who did the subjecting. And it's easy to think Adam did the subjecting, he, he's the one who sinned, or Satan did the subjecting, he's the one who tempted. But there's a great two words that, that let us know it was God. First of all, it had to be God. He's the only one who, who could do it. I mean, no one can take all of creation and, and, and bring a fall but, but God himself. But there's a great phrase that said that uh, it was subjected not willingly, but by him who subjected it in hope. Satan doesn't subject anything in hope. Adam wouldn't subject anything in hope, 
But there was hope when this creation failed, and the person who would subject it with hope is God. Now think about that. What, what could his hope be? What hope did he have when he subjected our world and brought, brought this record off the record player and the, the fall happens and the, the, the static starts and nothing's beautiful anymore? I, I have one, one contention, and it's not mine. I, I read it in preparation for this, but it blew my mind. Could it be that since Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, that, we, that his, his plan was always to come to this planet, that the canvas that he was going to, 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 to die in front of, the, the world itself, had to be the exact place that would bring about the life and the death he needed to have. In other words, um, God subjected the world in hope for it to be the exact place that Jesus needed to come and live and die, and that it served his purposes there. Or that he subjected it in hope that we would be drawn to him in the beauty that's in the world and in the terror that's in the world. So that both the gentle breezes and the hurricanes provoke us to cry out for God. We'll cry out in pain because of the terrible and we cry out in praise because of the beautiful. And so regardless of the exact reason, and there's probably thousands that we'll celebrate when we know the answers to all these things, but what's clear here is that he did it in hope, that it wasn't an abandonment, which means, and this is hard for me to accept, I know it to be true, but I, I, I don't operate like it's true all the time, which means that nothing happened to compromise God's sovereignty when he subjected the world and brought the fall. Just as he, he, was, just as he was in control of all events before the fall, he is in control of all events after the fall. He's not less sovereign because he's the one who did the creating and he's the one who did the subjecting. So there's never a time when God thinks when something happens, I really wish I could do something about that. He just always does something about that. So in the past, we see a plan that God created the world and he allowed it to fall more than that, he subjected it to fertility in hope. And that even the terrible, the fall of man or the crucifixion of Christ, even the terrible have a master. And the master is God himself, the same master of the good. Because he's the creator and he's the subjector. Now let's read the passage with a present mindset. What's happening now? That was... Mostly about God and mostly about creation. The second one is mostly about us. What we do now is wait and suffer. We're waiting for redemption. We're suffering with longing and with hope. So see if those jump out at you as we read the passage again with this present mindset. Paul says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. 
that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, here's what we are doing, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly as son, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for hope, for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So now we are added to this commentary. It's not just creation that's suffering. We're suffering as well. And all these sufferings, those in creation and those in us, are not worthy to be compared to the future glory that we'll one day enjoy. So creation waits. It is an amazing, I don't want to be too simplistic, but it's almost as if, as if we respond to God or don't, but we have this connection with God, right? And creation responds to us because that's what's happening in the present as well. At the fall, creation was subjected, and now the Bible says that creation is groaning, and it says why. It's groaning as a parable of, of us because it's waiting for us to be wrapped up in God's grace and be brought to perfection, and when that happens, the creation itself will come to attention and everything will be set right. It's as, it's as if creation is responding to us in the past, and now creation's waiting to respond again, wanting to be set right. And then it will be set right at the revealing of the sons of God, or in another place of the passage, the adoption of sons, or in another place, the redemption of our bodies. All one event that's going to set creation right. So we have this, Hebrews 11 tells us, we have this great cloud of witnesses as we live, cheering us on and watching us, and we have creation around us serving as a metaphor for our lives and a parable for our struggle. And you can just imagine when we finish that race and those witnesses have been cheering us on and we finish the race and we, we break the tape, so to speak, and, and, and all of it, the coronation begins and creation is set right. It snaps to attention to mirror the redemption God's going to give us. And we suffer because we're part of creation, but this passage makes clear we also suffer because we're separate from creation. That we who have the Holy Spirit, that is not all of creation. Now we're being very specific here. That is Christians. And so I want to outline, I think, from this passage, because we're told we suffer, but we told, we're also told it's in hope, that Christians suffer differently than lost people. And that we suffer differently because a lost person as part of creation might know there's something wrong with the world, and we know what it is. And we know we have this added suffering, and it's going to be answered with glory, no doubt. But right now in the present, we have this added suffering of suffering with the not yet. We know what the problem is. We know it won't always last. 
and we long for it not to last anymore. A lost person just knows something's going wrong. So a lost person can't suffer the way a believer can, which is the same way God subjected the world. Do you remember the two words? Just as God subjected the world in hope, we suffer in hope, with hope. I think, and you might have never heard this, and I don't think I've ever said it before either, so it's, it's one of those shaky grounds, but I think that it would even be fair to say that as, as believers, we suffer more than lost people, I think. And, I, and the reason why is, I think, because as you have added insight and as you had, have added love, you suffer more. If your neighbor across the street dies, you have a certain level of suffering. You see cars coming in and out, and you have some sympathy for that neighbor. But with every added insight, you suffer more. Like if you know the neighbor was about to have their first grandbaby, oh, it hurts even more. You know they were just about to be married, or you know they're leaving a wife who's pregnant. Any detail adds to the suffering. Or if you loved that neighbor and you ate with that neighbor and you were in and, in and out of each other's houses and that neighbor was your friend. So insight and love cause you to suffer more. And no one lives with more insight and more love than believers. When things go wrong, we've got all sorts of insights lost people don't have. And it causes a sort of groaning inside. When things go wrong, sometimes we hurt to the extent that we loved, right? A bigger heart ends up being a greater loss, and we have love that lost people don't have. And so we groan, awaiting a body that this scripture says, the redemption of our bodies. The, we, we groan waiting to have a body that will allow us to discard all the suffering and be able to possess all the beauty. And we can't do either right now. We can't possess all the beauty in the world. You've, you've probably been in moments like that where, I, you know, um, I remember the first time I went to the Grand Canyon. I love it. It's one of my favorite places on the planet. And I was with a friend the first time I went in college. It was a great college trip. I got home at 10 p.m. on Friday. He said, do you want to go to the Grand Canyon? I said, absolutely. We packed. We were gone by 11 p.m., drove straight there. It was great. When we got there, as we're coming in, he, he, was, he talked a lot. And, and I remember saying, we were like 10 minutes, and I, I remember saying, Heath, don't talk to me while I'm looking at the Grand Canyon. Because I knew to see this majestic hole in the ground, was gonna, the beauty was going to fill me to the brim anyway, and I didn't need any distractions. And, and the truth is, you've seen mountains and shooting stars and canyons and, and, and the birth of your children. We've all had these amazing, beautiful moments that we cannot completely even possess. They're beyond us. And so we groan wanting a body that could hold it all in and not burst if we really had it all. And we have that not yet kind of suffering that lost people don't have. The, the Bible says we're heirs of God, but we're heirs too immature to take our place. So it's all ours. We've got all these promises, but we're not old enough to take our place rightfully in the kingdom. And so we live groaning and hoping at the same time. And I think that's a second distinction for believers versus lost people and how they suffer. I think believers might indeed suffer more 
And I know, because I have a passage and a verse for this one, that believers suffer uniquely because the Bible says um, we are sorrowful yet ever rejoicing. Lost people don't feel sorrow and joy simultaneously. They might feel them very quickly one at a time. But we have, this is an amazing gift, we have the capacity as believers to feel sorrow and joy at the same time. It's 2 Corinthians 6.10 that says that. Sorrowful but ever rejoicing. So we have joyous burden after joyous burden, sorrowful but ever rejoicing. I'm going to give you a, a personal example of one of the most terrible and terrific two hours of my life. That as a, last, as a lost person wouldn't have hurt as bad, and as a lost person wouldn't have felt joy and sorrow simultaneously, and as a lost person wouldn't have had that terrible, terrible groaning of the not yet, of the come on, let's get out of here. A little over a year ago, I had a... a a niece, or a cousin that I thought of as a niece died. She was 18 years old. She was a senior at Kilgore High School, about to graduate in just a few months. And it was terrible. I miss her all the time. Her name is Samantha. I miss her almost every day. I think about her every day. It's, it's, I work at a high school, so I see all these healthy high school students, and I just wonder why my 18-year-old cousin died. And she, she was loved. She loved Jesus, and she loved others. And the waiting room had hundreds of people. And I guess because I work at a high school, and I was asking my family, is there anything I can do? I was put in charge of security for these hundreds of high school students. And my job, because there was a two-hour visitation and 100 people who wanted to see her, she was brain dead for three days before she finally died, so there's lots of time for people to come say goodbye. So my job was to make sure they only stayed two minutes in the room. And, and I gathered them in the waiting room, and I said, okay, guys, here's the plan. We're going to call it the 2-4-2 plan, okay? I'm trying to be distant and, and, and not get worked up. I said, two of you can come at a time for two minutes. That's it. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to ask you to leave after two minutes. So they line up down the hallway two by two, and I stand in the door of the hospital room, and the first two come out, and then as they leave, the next two, two come. And it was terrible. Because I was the witness to all of these teenagers. Some of them just came in and, 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 and knelt on the ground and prayed. And some of them threw their bodies on top of her. And some of them looked at me and asked, is it okay if we touch her? And I nodded my head. And, and some of them sang songs. And some of them talked about, come on, you got to come out of this. We have a soccer game next week. For two hours, I listened to all of these 16 to 18-year-olds talk to God and talk to Samantha. And... At some point, the hospital room became a sort of sanctuary, and I began thanking God that I was a doorkeeper in his presence because she loved Jesus. She loved Jesus. She did missions during the summer. She would stop by on her, during school on her way to lunch. We learned at her funeral. She stopped by the special ed classroom and went in and checked on them. The special ed teacher talked about how she was encouraged that, that someone noticed there were special ed kids. She was just a neat kid. And the, the hospital room became a sort of sanctuary, and I was filled with joy that she was with Jesus. It was terrible, and it was terrific at the same time. And I wouldn't have hurt nearly as bad as a lost person. <laughs> and I wouldn't have felt both at the same time. 
and I wouldn't have had that groaning of not yet. Why can't we just all be with you? And so we suffer in a way that lost people don't suffer. And this passage tells us, as we suffer, we wait. We just wait and hope. And it says that our present suffering isn't even comparable to the future glory. Now that's present and, and future oriented, so we'll use this as our transition, but it's my favorite line. It's good news that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. Some translations say in us. So I want to give you a, a picture. If you had a, a balance scale, you know what those are where you put something on each side and, and balance it out and see the difference. You're comparing two things. If you have a balance scale, it only compares comparable things, right? You can put bananas on one side and apples on one side, but you can't put apples on one side and a bowling ball on the other side. It won't work. The bowling ball will just bottom out the, the balance, and you won't know the difference between the two. I think that's the sort of picture Paul is giving here. It's like, look, we have a scale, and, and if you put our present sufferings on one side, but then you put our future glory on the other, future glory just bottoms out the scale. It can't be compared. Even if you had Mount Everest-like agony for all of your life, what blows my mind is like, I don't know where I read it, but it blows my mind, that a teaspoon of a star weighs the same as Mount Everest. A teaspoon of a star, it's that dense and that heavy. That's the weight of Mount Everest. And that the glory we're going to be given is more glorious than all the stars in the heavens. So let's read the text one more time, and I'll conclude with this future orientation and celebrate that that is what we are looking forward to. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to fertility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So one day, and, and, and this, this blows me away. This was a discovery I didn't have before I studied this passage, and I love to, to discover something. The glory that, that is so weighty and that is so wonderful is our own glory. 
I'm not ashamed that my default as I read, and, I, and probably you too, when we read the Bible and we, and we see the word glory, we automatically think that that's God's glory, and that's a great default. But as I studied the passage, it makes clear the glory is the glory that comes at the revealing of the, the sons of God, at the adoption of the sons of God, and at the redemption of our body. It's the glory we will have, and certainly it's God's glory. But it's the glory we will have, not just the glory we'll see, but the glory that will be revealed in us and to us. It will be our own glory. Our own glory will be so weighty and so wonderful that all the present sufferings of this life will not be worthy to be compared. It's as if if you have the Mount Everest of problems at the redemption of your body, the stars of the heaven, that weight of glory is thrown upon the scale. If that happens, the mountain is just catapulted into oblivion. The scale is just burned up with fire, and the pronouncement is made, not worthy to be compared. It's going to be an incredible moment, and it's the future that we're promised. Paul uses the Child, child labor pains as an example. I love it. It was right down the road. I'm sorry. It's the best line you've ever, one of the best lines you've ever given Mandy, so I'm going to share it. I love when we went to have our firstborn down the road and we came in and they said, will you be having an epidural or, or a natural childbirth? And she said, oh, it's natural for me to have an epidural. I love that. <laughs> and And... And I think, you know, that's, that's, how we, that's the appropriate way probably to respond to suffering. We want to do all we can to limit it, and we do that throughout our whole life. And even the efforts to, to eliminate it and tame it, certainly we still suffer. And here Paul talks about a woman suffering in childbirth with labor pains and, and gives this comparison, you know, and, I mean, he, he's a man and I'm a man, but it is inspired scripture, so I, I speak, I'm going to speak with authority on pregnancy here for a minute. Um, so it's months of, of discomfort and sickness and then hours of agony, but then you get a human being, right? And so I think that's why he chose it. And even those of us who, who've never going to experience that, know that a woman is way out of bounds. We would completely judge a woman if she ever said to one of her children, you know, you're not worth the labor pains I felt. That's awful, wicked. Of course they're worth it. Everyone just agrees universally that they're worth the labor pains. And so I think what Paul's getting at is that all of our suffering and all of creation's suffering is producing something that will be completely worth it. The only moment I can imagine where labor pains wouldn't be worth it is if the baby you deliver isn't alive. Imagine the radical difference. The pain's the exact same. The pain's the same. But there's a radical difference when a healthy baby is placed on that mother's chest and she looks up with glory or the baby's stillborn. The pain's the same. But the, the reaction, what follows, is completely different. And so here is the best promise I can give you in the last sermon you'll probably hear this year. Our joy will not be stillborn. Our joy 
will be forever escalating, forever increasing, brought to us by the one who suffered for us because of the joy set before him. What an amazing promise. So I want to worship this king. I want you to sing with me. The band can come while we sing, but let's sing a Christmas song that can just be a worship song this morning. Will you stand and let's sing?